This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. The gospel is not just the diving board off which we jump into Christianity. It's the swimming pool in which we swim. That's a line from J.D. Greer's new book, Essential Christianity, The Heart of the Gospel in Ten Words, published by The Good Book Company. Greer is pastor at the Summit Church in North Carolina and the author of many books. He served as the 62nd president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant church network in the United States. His book, Essential Christianity, works through Romans, the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. Based on Romans, Greer defines the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, this way. Quote, God, in an act of grace, sent his son, Jesus, to earth as a man so that through his life, death, and resurrection, he could rescue us, reign as king, and lead us into the eternal full life we were created to enjoy. End quote. Now, Greer writes not only to encourage believers in Jesus, but also to challenge non-Christians. He aims to show how the gospel, the gospel defies many modern expectations. For example, he writes this, quote, The cross yields a radical inclusiveness that welcomes anyone, celebrates everyone, and looks down on no one, end quote. J.D. joins me on Gospel Bound today to talk more about Romans, the human condition, leadership, and maybe I'll have a question or two about the SBC. J.D., <laughs> thanks for joining me. That's a, that's a very broad palette of questions you just defined. I, Slightly ominous. Overpromise and underdeliver is what I feel like I'm being set up for right here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's just let's, let's start simple. What do you think makes Romans still feel so fresh in addressing the human condition today? You know, I mean, you start with some of the historical facts just about how I mean, almost every major awakening, the Reformation itself, you know, it just goes back to looking into what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. And, you know, my thought kind of in this was it really started with something for the church in one of the commentaries that Luther wrote, not on Romans, but he just was talking to a group of pastors and he said, hey, never aspire to teach the church at large, teach your church. And if the church at large feels like you have something to say to it, it'll come to you. So this really kind of started just walking our church to the book of Romans, which I'd been scared to preach for about <laughs> 17 years because, you know, I mean, we all know D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and whatever it was. I was going to say. Yeah, he spent 16 <laughs> years in it, something like that. So um, I'd kind of been scared. And then um, just the fruitfulness, the way that the way that Paul, you know, kind of his, his argumentation where he anticipates – um, objections and then answers them. You know, it's kind of anecdotal. I share this anecdote in the the book, but you know, for the first you know uh, century of Harvard's law school, they'd use Romans as an example of how to walk through an argument, starting with presuppositions that we all share and then reasoning to it. And so, um, you know, what I found was that as you isolated these questions and re reworded them, 
they were the exact same questions um, mm -hmm. that uh, it's interesting. You know, Molly Worthen, who had you had on your podcast earlier, mm -hmm. um, she at the time was not a believer. And I asked her, she started to come to the church and was writing the book. And I said, would, would you read this book along with me and from the perspective of an unbeliever? And she said about halfway through it, um, uh, she said, she said, it's amazing that the questions that Paul is asking and answering are the same ones I get from my students at UNC Chapel Hill, you know, whether they're raised in a Christian background or not. And she said it makes that, you know, this content that much more, more relevant. Um, so uh, interesting little tidbit. You know, I tell a story about her in the first chapter of the book and I call her an unbeliever because she was. <laughs> I see. And then by the time the book was published, <laughs> she'd become a believer. <laughs> so she's on the back now as a believer. So you can actually look at the first and end part of the book and see, you know, BC and AD for Molly Worthen. <laughs> I love that. I had no idea. I did not pick up on that. I love it. I want to ask you about this quote. Uh, you write this, the most important thing about Jesus is not what he taught, but what he did. Paul's letter to the Romans, in fact, speaks very little about what Jesus taught and a whole lot about what he did. It's not what he taught that saved us, but what he did. The symbol of Christianity is not a lectern, but a cross. Christianity is, in its essence, a rescue religion. I'm just going to ask the question I think a lot of people would have when they hear that. How does Romans relate to the Gospels? Because, of course, they include so much of Jesus's teaching. Yeah, no, great question. I, I definitely don't want to be the guy on record saying what Jesus taught was not really important or should be downplayed <laughs> at all. But um, you know, one of the things that D.A. Carson says, and I realize that what I just did is there's sort of a you know appeal to authority, but he says that really all the Gospels are an extended narrative leading up to the Passion. Like it's kind of the setup for them. That's the one thing that is the center point of every book. You know, not literarily the center, but it's where it's all headed. And you know, Jesus's teaching is certainly. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, the, um, you know, the, the, of course, the wisdom and the ethics and, and countless books justifiably been written on those things. But at the end of the day, um, this is about a crucified Savior who's, you know, who, what he did is A, what saved humanity, and it's B, what informs all the rest of the ethics and how we see ourselves and how we see, you know, the kingdom itself. Um, you know, I've been places where I, I would guess, well, well-meaning people would say, you know, in fact, I, I'm thinking of one right now where a guy uh, said, you know, well, we've heard enough about the death of Jesus. We need to talk about the life of Jesus and what he taught. And it was so passionate and he was trying to get it, you know, discipleship. And that's all for that. But there's no possible way to understand anything about Jesus, what he taught or what he lived or the significance he had, if you don't put at the center point, the cross and the empty tomb. So um, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit of yeah. overspeak saying that, but, you know, that's, that's what we're yeah. going for. Well, is it surprising? Should we be surprised that Paul does not interact more with Jesus's teaching? I mean, I wonder if how, how many people even notice that when they're picking up Paul is that it's, it's kind of now, of course, at the time you're talking about the, the BC, the AD of Molly Worthen mm -hmm. as part of Paul's life as right. well. Right. I mean, he right. would have known some of Jesus's teaching, but he wasn't there in the same way that the people in the Gospels were, but he would have been familiar with it in many sure. different ways. But should that be surprising to us? Yeah. Or Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, what's the you significance know, you, Yeah, you're a good, a good enough scholar. We all recognize that there are allusions to Jesus' teaching kind of littered all through Paul, what he says. There are, um, you know, he de definitely de demonstrates a degree of familiarity. It's, it's, it was popular for a while in the liberal wing of the church to try to separate, you know, Jesus and right. Paul. But right. that, yeah, you know, I think a, a consistent, responsible scholarship of the New Testament would never do that, because what Paul is is picking up on is, 
yes, what Jesus taught about the kingdom is, is essential, but when he says, I've determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified, right. he's not saying at the expense of Jesus's teachings. He's saying no. that that is the, the culmination. It's the, it, it, it's the foundation on which all the teachings make sense. And it, yeah. it, it, the emphasis he puts on the syllable of um, the death and resurrection could, could lead him to an overstatement like, I didn't know anything among you except for this. That's how important yeah. it was in his teaching scheme. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that Jesus taught, one of the main things he taught was that he needed to die hmm. and why he needed to die. I mean, that's a clear turning point uh, there in the Gospels when it's like, you know what? I'm heading to Jerusalem. It's going to be bad, but it has right. to happen. Um, you know, a teaching that was very difficult, that there was a lot of consternation about, and that didn't make sense apart from the events that they saw in Jerusalem with his with his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. Yeah, and then even um, Colin, what he said about, you know, I mean, with the infamous um, encounter on Luke 24, yeah. where he's now going to go back and say everything that was taught in the Old Testament was about yeah, what point. I did. It's a silhouette that is created. So even Jesus' teaching in the New Testament's are creating for us a silhouette that the death and resurrection, I mean, you know, not to overquote Luther here, but, you know, yeah. the theology of glory versus the theology yeah. of the cross, or it really is the dividing line between gospel religion and man religion. Yeah. Well, you 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 make a number of allusions in the book to skepticism uh, toward Christianity. One of them that you mention is the DNA strand and talking about how you could reconcile the DNA strand with the accident of life. And I love this uh, phrase that you have. You say, it's like thinking that an explosion in an ink factory could inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare. That's some good preacher talk right there, J.D. Uh, how does... <laughs> Southern Baptist the core, Colin. <laughs> it's true. How does Romans speak to creation as conviction? In other words, how can we be judged by God even if we never hear or reject the gospel? Help help elucidate that point that Paul makes. Yeah, you know, that obviously is one of the most difficult questions that you face. I um, I kind of joke, I have a, a little podcast called Ask Me Anything that was originally just for our church of, you know, questions they would ask me. And um, I found that with uh, people basically only ask five questions. Um, okay. And once you learn your answers to these five questions, you kind of... Or variations and on those themes variations on those themes yeah. um and this is always one of them you know is it's just a yeah. sense of like fairness and 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 what it is you know how, how we what do we you know to to quote jay pachevsky um i'm not sure i'm pronouncing his name correctly but he's like this is what we can't not know what we can't yeah. not know about creation that creation is testifying to us about the reality of a god it does though the, the you know your philosophical, your cosmological, and your teleological, and your moral arguments, and some people wrongly kind of read these as like proofs. Like we're we're really trying to lay out this ironclad case. And I'm not saying that there's, I'm not saying they're illogical or that they have holes in them. But really, what Paul is getting at is not that aspect of it as much as he is like these are things that that are just self evident that it takes a biased heart to be able to to miss. And that's what Paul is going to end up concluding in Romans 3 is that the reason that you miss the truth about God is not that it's not clear enough for you to see, it's that you have a reason, you know, not to believe it. I think one of the analogies I use in the book is you know, if you're if if you're coming on a crime scene and if 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 you are a um, if you're racist and the evidence clearly points to 
you know, somebody being guilty of this crime that you don't want to be guilty of it because you would prefer somebody else be guilty of it. It may cause you to misread evidence just out of the hate and bigotry in your heart. You might be able to come up with a logical case why this other person, but you're missing the obvious clues. And what Paul does is he says, look, this is pretty, this doesn't even need that much explanation because God has made it evident. And what we're guilty of is not ignorance of the truth, but suppression. Suppression yeah. is different than ignorance. Ignorance means I don't know. Suppression means I kind of did know, but I, I, I turned away from it. And Paul said, ultimately, the reason um, that, would, that humanity did that is because they're dead in sin, which means that the gospel is not what you're going to find at the end of a logical, um, a logical tree. The gospel is what God brings by making your heart alive again to be able to see what's plainly there and what you've you know, kind of known all along, at least in terms of the natural um, things about God. Obviously, the gospel itself is, is entirely special revelation. But anyway, that's the gist of, I think, mm-hmm. Romans 1 through, through 3. So another major theme that's connected to this is the, the, the way that we substitute ourselves for God. Um, I mean, it's a very, we can talk about the way that that works out in our post-Christendom age, our age of the therapeutic or the authenticity, or we, we can talk about all different things, but the essential aspect is we, we think that the world revolves around us. Mm-hmm. But that, of course, is exactly what Paul was talking about, is what Jesus was talking about as well. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. It's the original sin. And you offer this prayer that exemplifies the problem, even for Christians. And sometimes we don't even realize how much we still assume that the world revolves around us. But it's often revealed in these heartfelt but sometimes misguided prayers. Mm -hmm. And you, you say this, God, this is what I need. God, bless this, fix that, smite him. God, you didn't do this, so I'm mad at you. In fact, disappoint me again, and I will punish you by not believing in you. Uh, What does Paul offer in Romans as the antidote? And I'm going to throw Christians in there as well, because I think sometimes I look at that and say, "Uh uh-oh, that kind of sounds like me, J.D. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like I teach my kids, Colin, um, the— the sin is pretty easy to understand just by looking at the middle letter S I N is when I put myself in the middle instead of God. And you know, what Paul gets at is that really that's the sin behind all the other sins is that we gave glory to the creation or many places ourselves instead of the creator. And that just distorted everything that ultimately it's a worship disorder. And, you know, philosophers for years have come up with different terms, Christian philosophers on what but ultimately it goes back to what a worship disorder where, where I have got to be in the center rather than, than God being in the center. And it really helps you begin to get your mind around, you know, to use Jonathan Edwards terms, the sinfulness of sin. You know, a lot of times people really struggle with, with like, you know, I mean, hell really like eternity apart from God just for, you know, a few white lies and some, you know, whatever it is that you, calculate sin as and and you you know what about the the virtuous person i I know several virtuous atheists who are more generous than a lot of the christians i know what about them how is that you know fair but then you, you what you realize is that that ultimately the sinfulness of sin is because we have substituted ourselves at the center for for god and that you know that by itself is an act of such cosmological wickedness that it makes all the rest of the sins, and it doesn't make them insignificant, but it means that that the wickedness of that one thing of putting our fist in God's face and saying, I should be at the center, I should be in charge, I should receive worship, 
that's what really that that is the sinfulness of sin. Again, to use a rather you know earthy analogy, I, in the book I compare it to you know imagine if a married man is brought news from a private detector that his wife is cheating on him, and uh, the the investigator has video clips of her walking into a hotel lobby with this man, and on the way in the man you know generously tips the the bellhop. That's a genuinely good deed, but it's hard for that man to to call that deed good in light of the the betrayal and the wickedness. And what Paul is 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 getting at is this is ultimately what sin is is it's it's you instead of God and everything else flows from that but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that worship disorder and that blasphemy. Another common objection I think especially today, how does God love us by hating our sin? It, to viewing God this way, I don't think it comes naturally to us. Certainly not today. We equate love with affirmation. They're practically synonyms in Western culture. And we certainly don't feel accountable to any authority outside ourselves. So even the very nature of sin. So how does God love us by hating our sin? Well, let me channel my 10th grade Sunday school teacher for a minute and uh, say that I remember him making this profound point that was like a mind-blowing thing to me. Um, then and and uh, I think he was right. You know, the opposite of love is not is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. That love, by its very definition, includes hate in it. Because if you love something, you hate whatever it is that destroys it. And yeah. it is because because not in spite of, but because I love the cancer patient that I hate the cancer that is ravaging their body, um, and I'm willing to take rather drastic measures, including chemotherapy and essentially poisoning them to get rid of the cancer. It is because, not in spite of, but because I love my children, that I feel hatred when I see um, bigotry or lying or you know things that I know ultimately are going to destroy their lives. I can hate those things even as I love them. And when you think, you know, especially as Paul lays it out, that all of the disease and dysfunction and death and the curse of the earth ultimately goes back down to sin, how could God be loving? How could he love his own glory? How could he love us? How could he love his creation and not hate this thing that is destroying it? And so, you know, God in his love provides a way that we can escape um, that by offering us, you know, an, um, a, you know, a free choice. You know, let me punt for a minute all the, you know, questions of, of how that all happens. But um, he's offering us a choice and he's saying this is going to be something that you choose whether or not you are going to repent and, and receive Christ. But um, it's not something he's going to force on us, you know, in that sense. And so um, there is a, a, a dimension in which it, it, it's a very common objection I hear that God, if he's really God, wouldn't be a God of wrath. And you just say that doesn't really make sense. And you're not thinking about love. I, I find especially when I'm dealing with um, like an abuse um, uh, survivor, mm-hmm. you know, saying to them, God hates the, what the abuser did. He hates the abuse because he loves you. To somebody that's really suffered, that that resonates. And the only ones of us it doesn't make sense to are those that have never really suffered or never really felt the sting of sin against us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to something you said earlier, JD, you 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 mentioned that it's not necessarily evidence that we're lacking; it's our will and desire. Uh, some people do not want the gospel to be true. They don't deny necessarily that it's true, deny the things that Paul might be saying here, but they don't want. They don't want it to be true. They're going to simply ignore it. How do you talk to that person 
about Jesus? How do you, how do you reach that person? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, the, uh, one of the, the most effective soul winners, I use my independent Baptist past there for a minute, soul winners. One of the most effective soul winners I've ever known said that, um, he said a, um, a true evangelist believes two things. He says, number one, that salvation belongs to God. And he said that takes the pressure off of you because you realize until God cultivates the appetites, you, you know, it, ultimately, no matter what you say or how persuasive you are, how cogent your analogies, um, it's ultimately going to fall on. It's, it's the seed, the perfectly good seed that falls onto the wrong soil. He said, but the second thing you got to know is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which means that the word of God has the power of life in and of itself. And, you know, God blesses his word and, and it obviously takes the spirit, you bring the word to life, but the spirit and the word work in concert to bring life to people. So I know that when I'm talking, I often compare my own evangelism to like running a magnet across the sand. And I'm just asking questions to see where God is at work. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll discover that. But then sometimes I know that my role in one of these encounters is I am testifying, I'm speaking, I'm, I'm using scripture. And I'm praying that God would use the seed of that word to lodge in their heart and awaken it, you know, to, uh, to really make it come alive. I even think of, of Luther again, how he described his own conversion of like, you know, all these seeds that God had planted for years as he was studying the Bible as a monk to no effect. It was bringing no spiritual life in them, suddenly burst into life at once when the Holy Spirit took the word and just made it come alive. And so I get the privilege of doing that. And, and you do too. I, I remember reading this thing years ago about how um, the average person who comes to Christ hears the gospel 12 complete times before mm -hmm. they respond. And I'm like, well, you know, if I have uh, one of these uh, conversations that ends awkwardly with this person expressing I'm not interested at all, I'm like, well, I get to be one of the 12, you know, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere down the line, somebody may get to harvest the baton. it get to plant. Yeah. Hand the baton down to somebody else unknown and pray it forward. Yeah. Um, I got a, a few questions. I've been talking to J.D. Greer here about his book, Essential Christianity. I've got a few other questions just about church and life and even what's going on with you personally, J.D. Just I'm wondering what's next for you. I mean, I'm thinking you've led a large church through enormous growth over the last 20 years, more than 20 years. You've led the Southern Baptist Convention during some of the, um, let's just say, interesting times and also for an extra year which i'm sure you love this year <laughs> bonus year um you've published a bunch of books your church sends out thousands of church planters and other missionaries we've written about that at the gospel coalition what's left man <laughs> what do you do next man colin there are still and i know this is a yes got lightheartedly but you know there's still 6400 unreached people groups yeah and you know, I'm not really looking for a novel vision for the next 20 years. I mean, their really vision hasn't been novel truly since, you know, Jesus gave the Great Commission. Go make disciples who make disciples. And I, I really do. I'm convinced that the greatest thing, the legacy that we can leave is not a large church. It is a or a large movement or a lot of books. The greatest thing we can leave is leaders who are equipped to raise up other leaders. Uh, I would anticipate that the next two decades of my life, um, you know, just turned 50 years old. So is it okay to say two decades? Lord willing, two decades, <laughs> three decades, maybe. I would I would think so. We don't I know, so. but I think that's a safe bet. Yeah. So Lord willing, through the decades, I want it to be, you know, characterized most by leader development. And we do that obviously a lot through the church here with our summit collaborative and raising up church planners and missionaries, but also just great, you know, organizations like Gospel Coalition that we get a chance to partner alongside and to influence each other and to be a part of, of a movement. I'm first and foremost a pastor. 
you know, like, I mean, at the, that's my day job. That's what I love doing. And, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like all the other stuff books, so that they could all go away and I'm still, you know, called to this, this local church. And that's my great privilege behind, of course, being a dad and, and a husband. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, in fact, if your listeners wouldn't would do me a favor, I'm actually getting ready to take a, a few weeks of sabbatical is too strong of a word, but just a, a few weeks to, you know, kind of unplug. Um, one of our other teaching pastors is going to be teaching during that time. And I'm going to try to really just sort of get away and hear from the Lord about you know, what more specifically he wants me to to lean into. And so if you hear this and you'd be willing to pray for me, I would I'd, um, I'd be grateful. I love that. Now I mentioned the growth of the church. You you've led a medium-sized church that became a mega church, and you've kind of, as a leader, grown up in that church. <laughs> Twenty years, we've seen a lot of cultural change broadly. I'm wondering, JD, what what's the biggest change you've seen in your own leadership? Where have you where have you matured? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I. What was the biggest change in my own leadership? Uh, I'm a lot less confident now than I used to be. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess uh, confident in some things. Um, you know, you realize that, you know, I kind of thought it used to be that if I just put enough energy, enough time, read yeah. the right books, I can make this thing work. Yeah. Um, now you, you sort of realize that there's a, there's a, a sense in which unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Um, yeah. you know, Colin, I've seen some, I've seen, I've seen some truly amazing ideas that I've had at this church. I mean, like breathtakingly amazing. I've seen them fall flat and go nowhere. <laughs> I've also <laughs> seen the most half-baked things that I was just like, I mean, I, I'm like, fine, try that. And then boom, it just like takes off. <laughs> and you realize it was like the Lord is building this house. And, um, you know, I did, I remember I, I've gone back as prep in preparation for these few weeks I was talking about, I've, I've gone back and reread a lot of the books that I read when God first called me mm-hmm. into ministry. And, um, one of them was, is, is the Bible study experiencing God. And I'm not going to get into, you know, mm-hmm. everything about analyzing experiencing God here, but there was one central thing in there that I took away from that mm-hmm. has been of great fruit in my life. And that is that really, um, Christian ministry is figuring out where God is at work and joining him in that work yeah. that the spirit goes first. And so that's been, it's been a, you know, just, I look back and I'm like, that explains these last 20 some years. There've been places the spirit of God invited us in. And then there's been places that JD Greer went forward and the spirit yeah. ones, they are still around and they're bearing fruit. The JD Greer ones are as worthless as when the idea first came into my head. Yeah. That's one of the things I, I'm not sure seminary students are prepared when I walk them through these case studies, but I walked them through Birmingham, 1963, and I talk Mm. about a couple paradigmatic churches, 16th Street Baptist, where King's Marches often originated, First Baptist, which was one of the churches that was integrated by Andrew Young, part of the movement. And I look at the pastors in both situations, and I talk about the profound pain, regret that they both had um, for their involvement in it, not because they did the wrong thing but in part because they did the right thing. And they didn't regret doing it, but they, in the sense of that they thought it was the wrong thing, that they should have done something differently, but they regretted at some level something that I think is very, we don't talk about very much for church leaders, which is that you can do the right things before God, but it doesn't work. Hmm. You're, you're often choosing between two bad choices, 
hmm. or just know I'm going to do the right thing here, but it's not going to pay off. I just think the biggest conceit that I see in my own my own life, as well as with younger church leaders, is that we think, you know what? I'm going to be smarter <laughs> than everybody else. I'm going to be better ab- better about this. I'm not going to have the same problems that those people had previous to me. And it, But it seems like maturity looks something like becoming less and less and less confident in yourself mm-hmm. and more curious about what the Lord is doing. That's right. That's well said. In fact, you know, the late Tim Keller, I know who's very important to yeah. both of us, yeah. I remember hearing him say this one time in a message, and it just— it stuck with me, and I feel like it comes back to my head I, probably once a week in a different form. But he said, you know, like think about how we think about leaders and people 100 years ago. Yeah. You know, and we're like, I can't believe they thought this and did that. And <laughs> and he just said, do you really feel like 100 years from now, they're going to be looking back at J.D. Greer, Kyle Hansen, or even Tim Keller and saying, man, talk about a guy ahead of his time. You know, like, I mean, that's just not going to happen. I, I know my great, great grandkids are going to be embarrassed about me. And, and I, I need to embrace that and say, Lord, would you take a stumbling, often wrong, but yeah. never in doubt um, leader? Um, and will you just use this and build your church and not even the gates of hell and, and the, the lunacy of J.D. Greer will be able to, um, to, to stop it, prevent it? Oh, man. Uh, what's the just... Quick answer on this one. What's the biggest change you've seen in terms of expectations of pastors during your years at the Summit Church? Um, you know, there's a lot more suspicion of leadership. Um, you know, you used to sort of get a pass on certain things, and but now it's just I realize that I'm speaking to people, even people that have grown up in church. Just, you know, there's, a, there's just too many narratives and too many Netflix specials. Yeah. And, and yeah. you, you, you're coming from that. And in some ways, unfortunately, a lot of leaders, we've, we've earned that, you know, and so yeah. we have to fight that. When I was a missionary in a Muslim area, they just assumed that all Christians were immoral. And I had to fight against that stereotype. Now, as a pastor, I have to fight against the idea that this is a money, sex, and power thing. And uh, that's, a, that's, that's difficult. Yeah, it is. And part of that's because of all sorts of, like as you, you said, tangible things that have happened, including among our friends— at the same time, it's also a dramatic change in media that's yeah. brought that about as well. I'm not talking about just the kinds, but just the, the I mean, Netflix and social media and things like that, they didn't exist when you started <laughs> in ministry. It's right. been a big change there. Uh, a couple more questions here. I'm glad you brought up Molly, our friend Molly. She's one of the most popular guests in the four-year history of Gospel Bound, and the Lord used you as play a major role in her coming to faith. I just wondered, what would you like to add uh, from our to our listeners, our viewers here, on on uh, your perspective on her story of salvation? You know, um, I, I interviewed Molly actually for our, our staff team the other day, his first time because I mean, you know, we've oh, obviously cool. you and me both been trying to, you know, let her tell yeah. her story and her time and, and ways right. that are. But she, um, one of the things I told our staff as she was sharing her story. Well, first of all, anytime I talk, it's just taken away from what she's saying. And I'm like, just you keep talking and I'll be quiet. No, no, it's her, her just yeah, wisdom, just wisdom, flying out right. the mouth. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I'm reminded when I watch that of like, um, C.S. Lewis, um, said that when you're, you're part of a, a true conversion, when you are up close to yeah. it, especially if, if, if you're part of it, um, he said, it's like the experience of firing a high powered rifle. <laughs> where you immediately become aware 
that the force coming out of the barrel is not consistent with the force you put into the trigger. Uh, wow. And that's kind of how it felt with her. Wow. Is, is she, she tends to give me a lot more credit than, than, than I deserve on this. And I'm not even trying to be a falsely humble guy. You know, I'm just saying, yeah. you know, I, I kind of was like, okay, God is clearly at work in your life. That is obvious. I, I'm like the evangelist in, um, you know, Pilgrim's progress. Yeah, it just randomly right. shows up in the middle of the field. I'm like, go that way, you know, and I'm pointing her the right you know, directions. And, yeah. and, 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 and it really is, I mean, salvation belongs to God. And you realize that, um, you know, you just, we get the privilege of just saying, God, use me and show me where, where else are you at work and where can I be a part of it? So yeah, yeah that'd be my thought. Oh goodness. If anybody hasn't, um, watched or listened to that, go back and make sure Amen that, you to that. I'm yeah, glad uh, so many people and, and we've, um, yeah, just what a what a joy. Um, last question here, JD. You were the president of the SPC, as we've talked about, but it's not like you had unlimited power. Um, it's not <laughs> the way Southern Baptists work. That's Let's true. give you the power to change anything you could in the SBC. What would you do? Oh man, that's a. You know, I have probably a missional answer, and then yeah. I have uh, you know more of a probably a political answer. Um, I'll get. I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you both. You can go for okay, both. Okay, good. I get. I get one in each. You know. Yep. If I um, if I could make one change in the SBC, it's what I would do with all churches. Is if there was some way that you could convince or mandate churches that they have to be involved in church planning and sending missionaries, that changes the church. Um, mm-hmm. Rodney Start, the late Rodney Start, the you know church historian, he he said that if you go back and look at the explosive growth of the church in the first two or three centuries. And then consider they didn't have any of the things that we had and think are essential for church growth. He said, he identifies a handful of things, but one of them is he says, what they did have is the understanding that every Christian was responsible to multiply and every church was responsible to plant other churches. Mm. Um, You know, right now there are more Southern Baptist churches in America than there are um, McDonald's, Subway, and Starbucks combined. I know that blows people's minds, but go look it up and you'll see it's, and it just, it, you know, if you think about them multiplying um, right now, we've seen churches grow big and bigger churches than the apostles ever dreamed of. And at that same time period, we're watching the amount of the percentage of Christians in church go down in America, not mm-hmm. up. And so I, I'm not anti mega church. Could we be clear on that? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's it's not working as a way of church in America. It's going to take multiplication. So that'd be my missional answer. Uh, my political answer is I just feel like there's a tendency in literally every generation to um, turn things besides the gospel into the central thing. Yeah. And that happens to good people. And it happens, you know, I mean, Southern Baptist, our defining narrative is resisting liberalism. And praise God for that. I mean, praise God for those people. My, my fathers and forefathers that said, you know, we're going to stand on the inerrancy of the Bible and the exclusivity of Christ. And, oh. um, but then there's, there's, there's other leaven Jesus talks about. And Jesus's crucifixion was a joint project between the, you know, those on the left and those on the right. And, you know, to say, can we be like the gospel, like, like the gospel coalitions audience and like evangelicals oh. at large, can we be a people that are defined by the gospel and not by secondary political, you know, alignments? And I'm not trying to back off there of pro-life or right. the importance of gender and marriage. I mean, yes to all that. You know, proclaim that loudly. But can we can we be defined as a missionary people who are big on the gospel um, and and not build our identity in these other things? So 
there was a way yeah. that I could be czar and fix all that, I, I'd do it. But unfortunately, the most um, famous and least powerful person in the world is the Southern Baptist <laughs> Convention president. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, just barely ahead of the vice president of the United States. <laughs> Basically, those are the two the two positions. Yeah, in, in my in my research on Tim Keller, I came across Ed Clowney's message to Westminster Seminary, mm, um, and and he talks about how we've been known as the seminary of the clenched fist, mm. but I want us to be known as the seminary of the bowed head. Mm. And he said, it's not, it's not a bad thing that we fought vigilantly for the faith, but there are other modes of engagement as well. You can be yeah. vigilant about opposing liberalism, but you can also be fervent in prayer. And in fact, that's, that's our Lord Jesus. Yeah. And that's what we see in, in the book of Romans as well. So JD, it's been, it's been fun as, as expected and insightful. The, the book we've been talking about here with JD is Essential Christianity, The Heart of the Gospel in 10 Words. You can pick it up from The Good Book Company, wherever books are sold. JD, really appreciate your time here on Gospel Bound. Yeah, looking forward. I don't know when this airs, but looking forward to seeing you at the Gospel Coalition meeting. That'll be wonderful. Year. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing one of, our, one of our keynote addresses. Thanks, JD. Don't skip my session, everybody. <laughs> here we go. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.